Welcome to episode 4 of the White Code Podcast titled The Journey of Medicine to Epidemiology and Infectious Disease. Our names are Omer, Ashwin, and Bavik, and we're here with Dr. Shruti Gohil from UC Irvine Health. Dr. Gohill attended Tufts University School of Medicine and attended UC Davis for her residency. Today, we'll try to learn about her journey to medicine as well as her current endeavors as an epidemiologist. So let's get straight into it. Dr. Gohill, how are we doing today? Doing great with a, a rough uh, day, but um, the end of the week on Friday, but sometimes that all blurs into one. Yep. <laughs> for Saturday, Sundays, yeah. That's good to hear. Um, okay, so as we get into it, uh, which school did you attend uh, for your undergraduate studies and how was your experience as a pre-med student? Well, I'm pleased to say that I attended UC Irvine. I'm so proud to have come from UC Irvine. I never thought I would be back here. Um, but I am, and uh, I was one, uh, the eldest of three um, kids here uh, locally around um, in Anaheim, and uh, when I was considering careers, I really wanted to be a writer. Um, I did comparative literature and doubled in biology to make my parents happy. Uh, they wanted me to be a doctor, <laughs> and um, to be honest, I, I still wanted to pursue literature. And at that time, UC Irvine was one of the top places for comparative literature. I think it was within the top two nationally for comparative literature. And I had gotten, I was lucky enough to get a full ride here. Um, and so I stuck close to home and, and uh, you know, did both majors. And um, all along, I kind of, you know, of course, as being South Asian, you know, as a child and onwards, it was always sort of a said thing, okay, you're going to go into medicine. Anyway. So I don't know if it was, you know, if, if it was, right, you all know the dream. Um, so, know <laughs> yeah. so I really felt like it wasn't clear to me if I wanted to go to medicine because I was brainwashed into it or if I really wanted to do it. And so I ended up, um, and I knew I, I loved writing. So I ended up working um, on both, uh, partly because um, I wasn't sure about the writing part. And either way, one time I went, yeah, I wasn't really passionate, what I mean to say, is I loved, you know, biology and whatever. I was, wasn't really passionate about medicine, per se. I wasn't clear on it. So I went one day to pick up a friend at the Share Ourselves Clinic, which exists, I believe, still today in Costa Mesa. It's a homeless clinic. And I went to go pick up my friend. We were, we were going to go have dinner or something. Uh, and she was late. And she was really, really late. And she, this is one. She was a gunner from the beginning. She wanted to go to medical school, et cetera. And so I went to uh, I, I thought, gosh, well, she's taking so long. Let me go in. So I went into the clinic. And it was just pandemonium. There were so many patients who needed to get seen, who needed vitals taken. And she said, here, make yourself useful and do this stuff. And so then I did this stuff, which is vitals and just talking to patients and getting their history and intake. and hours went by, dinner went by, and I realized for the first time that my parents could be potentially correct, that I actually loved it. I loved um, meeting people um, who needed some kind of assistance and getting out of my bubble, and I thought for the first time, ah, shoot, they could be right. So then secretly, <laughs> without telling my parents, <laughs> I started studying last minute for the MCAT, um, and I'm I'm fortunate to say that I you know I, we you know we were middle class, but I also there's nobody in my family who went to medical school or nobody that I knew who really went to medical school, and I didn't have any any um, guidance. Uh, getting into medical school takes a lot of guidance actually, and um, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I thought okay well whatever I'll take the MCAT, and if I do well enough that'll be enough, right? Or, and then that'll be a sign from the universe that I have to pursue my, whatever I thought was my passion, uh, you know, literature. Um, and then, and, and I was kind of half committed, to be frank. And then I took it and then I did well, somehow. <laughs> and, I didn't, uh, and then I thought, I oh, shoot, okay, fine, let me just apply, let's see what happens. And I was fortunate enough to get into a good enough school. And then the weirdest thing happened. I got my acceptance letter um, from a couple of places, but then a Tufts, and that was the one I wanted to go to. And um, my my dad, I cannot believe, said, "Oh my gosh, that's too expensive. I don't know about medical school oh. <laughs> after all that time. <laughs> after all that time." So um, anyway, I took out loans and, and made it happen. But um, it couldn't be a better pick for me. Mm -hmm, definitely. 
So, Dr. Gohill, during your time at UCI, did you have any extracurriculars that you pursued, like research or any clinical experience or any side projects? No, yeah, lots of um, lots of research. Um, I actually did. I worked with Rose Lab. I think it's still there. Um, and they did this really amazing work in evolutionary biology. Um, and I think I spent a good two years there, two maybe three years, and um, also did uh, another, I think, research group that I was with with um, OBGYN, uh, looking at risk in pregnancy with cortisol levels, and the two totally different kinds. One was basic science, one was um, applied uh, work, epi, epi work actually. Um, and they gave me a broad exposure. I think the key was that, that I spent a long time, long enough time to really understand what, what I was doing. I wasn't just trying to get into medical school. I was trying to understand mm-hmm. what I was doing. Um, that, and then a lot of, after that share ourselves experience, I, I think I spent like three years there, um, uh, wow. volunteering my time. And, um, that, that was really a good, um, experience. And then I, I did a whole hodgepodge of things um, related to literature as well. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was, that was the background. Okay. Uh, and what do you feel of those, um, of those experiences helped you the most get into medical school um, and not only get into medical school, but grow your passion for medicine? Yeah, um, I think that's, that is the key point. You know, I, I did not do any of this striper, candy striper stuff or that, um, you know, going to a hospital and just kind of checking it out and volunteering it. You know, I think that the real key thing is um, to do things that are meaningful to you. And in fact, I'm not sure that they have to be fully in medicine. It has to be uh, within your area of true interest. Um, you know, when we're, I also am on the side, on the other side now where we interview medical students for um, who are applying. And what's clear to me is that I'm not looking for, um, you know, just these superficial experiences of, okay, checkbox, I did that. Oh, checkbox, I did that. And that's what I see a lot of. And yeah. um, of people who really are just, and then um, I feel bad because all the applicant pool beca- thinks that it's so mystical how you get into medical yeah. school. And it's actually not. What we're looking for is thinking human beings. And all of that applies. That means the thinking part and the human part. And um, you're looking for a quality of experience and a world of, of, of true interest, you know, a suite of interest that makes sense enough that that the person sitting in front of you is not only going to do well um, when it comes to the rigors of school, but also is doing it for the right reasons. And um, yeah. I think that that is really, because honestly, a lot of people can score well. You know, let's, let's, let's break it down. I mean, you, you have scores um, in your grades. Um, if you don't have certain minimums, you know, it's going to be very difficult to get in, right? You, yeah. that, that's just going to be hard. Um, yeah. But by the time you get to the interview place, what actually gets you in by, you know, that point, um, we're looking for things other than scores, right? So it's everything, but if without certain things, you're not even get look, you get a, a real shot. But after yeah. you get to a certain point, many people can be taught how to take a test and taught how to, you know, get good grades and, and um uh, and that kind of thing, but you can't put to color all the other stuff. That's where it comes into play. Yeah. So would you say that uh, experiences that help build a student's like character would be way more uh, meaningful than just doing like any type of volunteering for a couple years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to be able to say at the end of the day that, I mean, think about it. This is This is your life. This is... Um, you taking hours of your time doing something. And if we see that somebody is just kind of hanging out and standing around in a hospital, you know, how rich is that experience compared to something else, right? Like, I'm not saying that all candy striper things are bad. I'm just saying that, that what we're looking for is how, what'd you get out of that? You know, and, and can you explain that? Uh, and was it really a meaningful experience for you? If you can't answer those questions with the choices that you make, then 
maybe it's not the right thing. Maybe it's not enough. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay. Um, now, as we move into uh, your medical school experience, um, how, d how did you uh, like Tufts University? Oh, yeah. Absolutely loved it. I am so indebted um, for the opportunity to go to Tufts. It is a very expensive school. It's a uh, top-notch school, in my opinion. And um, I will say you kind of alluded to this in the very beginning. You were wondering how well did, did your undergraduate experience prepare you for school. And I'm so pleased to say I, I have always been kind of grateful for the UC system. But when I arrived at Tufts, my peers were like, from all these fancy schools, schools um, Harvard, Princeton, and and then across the gamut. And as a UCI student, I felt so um, you know insecure. Honestly, I felt like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how am I going to do in this test place? And um, but I'm so pleased to say that um, I I feel that UC Irvine. Um, prepared me at par or better than some of my colleagues. It, it really did. Uh, if you pay attention and you do what you're supposed to do, I mean, I don't, I don't think that I'm exceptional. I don't, you know, I did well, certainly, but um, I don't, you know, I didn't, uh, there were times where I didn't get time to study and there were times when I didn't do what I was supposed to do, but I, for the most part, um, you know, really was interested in the materials that were given to me at I wasn't really thinking about the test, and um, of course, I had. To, you have to think about the test too, but but I wasn't. That wasn't like my primary focus. And I feel like the time I spent with the grad students and the time I spent asking questions from my professors and what they gave me back, um, I was more prepared than some people I could point to who went to fancy school. So I am so proud of the UC education I got. Mm -hmm. How was your move from the West Coast to the East Coast? That's kind of a big transition. How was that like? I loved it. I strongly encourage anybody who's ever, who's been brought up here in Orange County or the West Coast to, to go to the East Coast. You will open your mind and your eyes so much. I probably would have stayed out there. Um, honestly, in some ways, there's um, just so much more um, culture, um, arts, literature, um, just yeah. a vibrance that I really, I was in big cities, I was in Boston, and then for fellowship, I was in New York, um, and uh, they are, it's just, it's indescribable, um, and I don't think I'd be the same person where I'm not out there. That said, uh, medical school is way more rigorous, I, in my opinion, in the East Coast. Um, mm -hmm. It was hard, it was grueling, um, there's a hierarchy, uh, that doesn't, I mean, over here, things are so calm and nice and people are so nice. <laughs> um, and out there, that's not always the case sometimes, but not always the case. And, um, and you know, while it was a little shocking for me, I, I don't think it's just shocking for any South Asian student, to be frank. Um, and when you get out there, you realize that that kind of rigor, when you come back here, um, you're triple prepared for people um, here. Okay. Um, and what was the most impactful experience for you at Tufts uh, Medical School? Ooh, that's a good question. Oh my God, like the all of it. Like every like month was a new experience. Oh my yeah. goodness. I, I mean, it's hard to, um, to not say that anatomy wasn't a big deal, mm -hmm. um, even though it's so trite. Um, I think that is the first moment that you realize that you're doing something um, that, that really what you put into your brain and what you're responsible for um, is going to impact the life of somebody. I think it hits you then because, you know, all of this, everything else is kind of joking around. You're, you're prepping undergrad, you're doing all this stuff because mom told you so and God knows what. And, um, and then you realize at some point you have to own that. And um, I think that anatomy stands out because at that point you realize that if I don't study and I don't know this stuff and I don't do my best, it's done for somebody. 
And that's, that's a humbling moment and it's a great privilege and it's also extremely scary. And um, how are your clinical rotations in medical school? Uh, oh, they were great. I, I, that, I will say it was one of my favorite parts. So I was definitely one of those people who enjoyed the clinical space so much. Um, there were some people that say the first two years are their favorite, the, the second two years, the clinical years are their favorite. Definitely, uh, I loved all of it, um, but the second uh, two years were just amazing. So the clinical rotations were all over the place. I ended up, because I think I, I came from a place where um, I didn't even expect it or think that I was really going to go to medical school. Um, once I was there, and also paying a lot of money to be there, <laughs> um, I decided that I would. I decided that I would challenge myself to the maximum. Um, so I did some unusual things. I actually ended up doubling up on a bunch of things, like. Um, so, for example, you're required to do, I think, one or two ICU rotations. Um, um, I think I did three. I did OBGYN at, like, the worst place at Harvard. Uh, I, I chose to um, – I also was doing a concomitant MD-MPH, Master's in Public Health. So um, that kind of made things a little hard, I have to admit. Um, but but um, for my clinical years, I ended up taking um, – stacking it up so that I was in surgery – um, and ICU and OBGYN, all these like intensive things. And even for psychiatry, they let you choose, you know, like you rank your places where you're going to do your clinical rotations. And I chose like the craziest places <laughs> because I figured if you do the worst, then you can do better in the places that are not the worst, right? And so, yeah. um, one place was something called Lenox Hill. I'll never forget it. It, you know, it was a, um, a psychiatry location. Uh, inpatient psychiatry wards with uh, adjacent to a prison and it was one of the most humbling experiences and I still remember um, key elements of psychiatry that I think made me a better doctor. So, so how was how was that experience that whole and uh, how long were you um, doing those rotations for? Oh yeah, which which one in particular? You mean the, the psychiatry? Um, the psychiatry. Oh, yeah. psychiatry was amazing. Um, <laughs> it turns out that Tufts, if any of you are interested, um, Tufts is one of the places. That's where the uh, very strong psych program, their mini mental status exam, and the psychoanalysts of the nation were born. And um, so we got these really massive. Um, actually, during our psych rotation, we had therapy sessions with our, our chair of psychiatry. So in other words, we would be the patient and the, and the chair would be like therapizing us <laughs> as medical students, which was a great experience because you learned how the art of questioning um, and how to get inside of somebody's mind and, and to understand them. Um, and so the experience in the prison and the psych wards, what I um, understood was um, it, it was so powerful because we're only, you see how much we, each humans, whether or not we're psychiatrically ill or not, are yeah. stuck in our own shells and how much our perspective depends on it. And um, it's really, it, it was so enriching and, um, and humbling. And, the, and even in the prisons, what you realize is just, you know, no matter what, I mean, I, I think I saw people who had done some heinous crimes, truly. Heinous. and um, but they're just human at the end, and it yeah. makes it clear for um, yeah, so it makes it clear as physicians that no matter and to this day, right, we still take care as I'm an infectious disease doctor, there might be somebody coming in from prison or whatever, um, but it really does train you to understand that you're just a doctor and you're taking care of a human, and w that human may or may not have a past or they may have a current that you don't agree with or whatever, that's not your business, and you just take care. Wow, that sounds, sounds like a great experience. So Dr. Goyal, how was your ma uh, residency matching like? The whole matching residency, process, how was that like? The, the process is really tough. That is mystical. Being <laughs> 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 in medical school, I feel is a lot less mystical, but like residency was really crazy. Um, they have this different matching system that um, 
that you have some control over, but you could get matched to a place where you don't want to go. It's really um, scary. Um, I chose programs. Um, the matching was great. I got my first, no, I got my second choice. Uh, my first choice was I knew a reach for me. Um, but that was, I, I chose my program looking for old clinicians to learn from. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I have a pattern of looking for, okay, what do I want out of any given situation? Uh, when am I going to learn the most as a human being? Um, fine as a doctor too, but also as a human being and a doctor. And what can I learn? And really, you know, today in medicine, it's all kind of vanishing, this expertise, this clinical expertise. I mean, it's, I shouldn't say vanishing, but it's changing a lot in we're turning into these um, people who are looking at data on, on, on an electronic medical chart and collecting all the info and going to the bedside and asking a few questions and boom, get a CAT scan, get, you know, get all these labs and values and everything. Um, I wanted old clinicians because I can read a bunch of stuff in a book, but I can never get years of experience to teach me, right? So I chose um, to rank UC Davis as number two. And that place had some of the oldest and best internal medicine clinicians there. And I had a really directed reason and my personal statement said it and why. And um, I think that helped. Um, and I, when I was there, I mean, I was thrilled to match at UC Davis. I knew that that's where I, would get, I was gonna match because I thought the first one was gonna be a reach. Um, so as crazy as the process is, I think if you're looking for something in particular, and you were able to sow the seeds of that into whatever it is, you know, your personal statement or whatever, then I think, I think it's not as harrowing. And, but I, I actually do think that it's an okay system because at the end of the day, no matter where you go, you hit the ground and you have to learn it. Then that, so if I went to a place and I didn't have my, my experienced clinicians, that I had young ones. Um, but it's a great institution, or I had young ones and they weren't that great either. Well, what's my choice? My choice is to learn the heck out of everything. I and mean, your greatest teacher is your patient anyway. And um, so, and, and what are you going to do with this time? It's just like the volunteer experiences you guys were talking about. You know, it's like, well, I have this much time with a patient and this much time doing this rotation. I either kick and scream and complain about the work I have to do, or I get the most out of the experience. Uh, it's my choice. And um, and and I'm not going to do it because, like somebody said, I had to, but be, and go through the motions. But because I have something to learn, this person, it's my my attending, or this person is my patient, and I'm going to try to soak in as much as I can. That's the kind of hunger. Because why that's important to me, and why I look for that in medical student applicants is because I I want to see that because medicine is changing all the time. It's only growing the amount of information you have to put into your brain and spit out is, is too much. It's not feasible anymore. That, uh, you know, in the roundabout way, the way I'm answering your question is basically at, um, at the end of the day, no matter what you step into, you're, it's, the onus is on you to make that experience correct. Okay, uh, and then moving into um, your residency at UC Davis, uh, how long did your residency take? Um, and what responsibilities were you given as a resident that you feel impacted you the most? Yeah, I did an internal medicine residency, um, and I did three years, uh, all internal medicine residencies of three years. Now they've got the work hour restrictions. They might, they're thinking about making internal medicine four years. Um, back when I was doing it, I think it was just a year before, um, they went into work hour restrictions um, and since then we still are at three years and so um, what did I get out of what, the intern year just sucked it was terrible um, it was just intensive on time you're taking what happens during residency is that you're taking all the book stuff that people taught you over four years you learned hundreds and thousands of new terms you've learned everything that you're supposed to learn and passed every test that you you're supposed to pass and now you've got to take that information and just like I was saying before now you've got to take that information and apply it properly to the real world and nobody no patient reads a textbook um, no clinical scenario is cookie cutter 
And so that's why you need the thinker at the table to put all the pieces together. And the business of residency is to take all that stuff that's a gamush like in your head swimming around and focus it into, all right, what does the patient have? And how am I gonna treat it? And how do I know that I'm not gonna do anything that will make the patient worse? Um, and how do we get the best outcome from, from uh, my treatment? Uh, and that takes a lot of art and nuance that you get over time. And so that's why it takes three years. So the first year you're just struggling. You're just like, ah, everything's like, ah, I don't know. I <laughs> you're like relying on your residents to really help you um, understand what's happening with a patient. You kind of have an inkling, but you really don't get it. And it's that attending who's on there with you who really learn to teach. How do you question a patient to get the info you need? That my psych rotation came in, right? <laughs> how do you question um, a per, uh, how do you get the right observational skills that when you're walking to the room, you know what is most likely wrong and you use the power of your senses to listen to the heart and the lungs and whatever to really tell you things that the CAT scan can't or listen to the patient that, to tell you things that all these tests have to be interpreted and, and they don't make sense unless you really put the patient in it. Did I answer uh, your question? <laughs> no, 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 that's yeah. it. Um, just a quick backtrack. Uh, the question uh, we had was, what are your thoughts on uh, the step one being pass or fail? I know um, essentially they made this to kind of help students and ease the uh, pressure off them. Um, does this really help students, medical students at all, in terms of residency in the long term? And does it? And um, some people have been also saying that it kind of matters what school you go to in order to get into a competitive specialty because of this. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Oh, I think it mattered what school you get into even before this. Mm -hmm. To be totally 100% clear, mm -hmm. it matters. It matters how well you can, you know, where do you go, where are you going to get in? You know, if you go to a place that's not accredited or minimally accredited or recently accredited, like in the Caribbean, or, you know, I've heard terrible stories about people not being able to find anything, let alone a specialty, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, so it does, it matters. So that's the extreme, but, but even in the middle range, middle tiered schools or, um, or um, uh, you know, even within the upper tiered, but like not the not the top. It matters. You know, I, I wish I had paid more attention, honestly. And if I had, it probably would have gotten me to more opportunities, probably. Um, pay more attention, meaning I always, I thought any school is just as well, you know. Um, and and as long as I pass, it's good. And um, and that's fine. I mean, because I got I got what I needed out of all these schools, actually. But. But I realized in retrospect that where you go, how you manage to navigate really does help you. That said, I did fine. I came all the way from UC Irvine and went to Tufts. It was all good and, and got every opportunity I wanted. Um, so it does matter. Pass, fail. Um, yeah, I think that it could matter more in the minds of some because you really want to know who you're getting at this point. We don't know how well. Um, people are going to, um, you know, what, what does the past really mean on step one? And, and then I think what's going to start mattering more if the steps are pass-fail is, um, now mind you, nobody, I don't think anyone's talking about, oh, let's look at their schools more. You know, I don't think that is the way we think about these things at all. But I do think that you're going to start to, you're going to need to, you as a school me, you have to think about how am I going to vet a person really, truly, um, and assess them for fitness in my school. That becomes more complicated. I'm not sure I'm prepared to answer how that hashes out because I'm not sure I've been privy to those conversations, um, but I, I can imagine that people will think a little bit harder about your school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, Dr. Go going back to residency, how were your residency hours like? Were you working long hours, 80 hour shifts, or 80 hour weeks? Yep. Yeah, they're still like that. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't stop. I thought it would stop, but it doesn't stop. Um, yeah. Uh, and I would say probably waking up. You know, early like six o'clock, getting getting to 
work by 6.30 to round on your patients and, and ready for rounds at 10. And round means that you are presenting all of the things that you have found on the patients that are on your list. Maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20. Um, usually it's more like 10-ish, 10 to 12. And you've seen them all, you've examined them all, you've um, put together in your head what's wrong with them and what your plan is going to be. And then you present it to your team, which consists of another intern or maybe more, um, and a resident or two, and, and you're attending, and maybe some medical students. And then um, everybody kind of um, talks about and discuss, discusses. Um, usually the attending is asking directed questions. Well, what do we think about this and that? And what are the possibilities and what's the differential diagnosis and then then from that hashes out a plan that that yours might be really um, in line uh, or it may not and then you learn why um, and then uh, all of that sets up the whole rest of your day the plan for the patients and then you put in your orders for the patients to get a cat scan get this that and the other thing labs and then you um and then by that time um, there's always something going on. Somebody's lab work came back, their blood platelets are low, or God knows whatever else is happening. Someone's bleeding out, or someone else's, um, you know, a CAT scan is showing a tumor or something. Um, and then you have to respond to that. So that's your whole afternoon to evening time. And then you have to sign out to the night person who's going to come in. And the night person comes in, and you give them the scoop on all your patients. That night person, when you're on night float, you're the one. You're the one for the whole hospital sometimes, mm -hmm. depending on what hospital you're in. So you're getting signed up from all the teams sometimes. Maybe there's two night floats at a time. Um, and you also have the code pager. During the day, the code, code blue pager is, is rotating around everybody else, um, all the teams. So like if you're the code team you're in a code team one day out of five days or whatever it is, or seven days. So and then then you sign out to the night person. That could take another hour or two. So then you leave around eight, um, and then you take calls from home if people are confused about your sign out. And then um, now we have regulations, work hour regulations that uh, don't allow you to work after a certain time. But when I went, I think I my intern year was overnight. So you actually did stay overnight. So I, there were days where I didn't wow. come home for 36 hours or 48 hours or um, something like that. It was terrible. Um, even in medical school, I remember walking in and it snowed a lot. And then when I walked out, it was three days later and I totally forgot where I parked. And, and, and I had to, without, with my California <laughs> vest and my, and my like, um, whatever a newspaper I went and scraped off the license plates on each car to like figure out which one was my car and then dig my car out it was that was the moment I decided California residency yeah anyway so that's that's what it gets tough the work hours are bad if, yeah. if that's the question but I don't think it got any better okay um and I you've you've talked a lot about um you know setting setting yourself up to be passionate about medicine and things like that but what do you feel like uh, or how can one set themselves up for a path to success on the journey to medicine it's kind of a a hard question <laughs> very big question. yeah big question i think yeah it's a big question i think you know how there's the usual way in which you have to you know i mean the real bottom line is you have to do extremely well academically um and i'm not talking one or two you know you know a couple of a's and b's b's don't do it you know you i'm just i'm just telling the truth you need a's and you yeah. need some b's that are fine but you're in the c category you're in trouble um, that it's a bottom line and um, it matters what your grades are. So if you want to set yourself up, first and foremost, that is the lowest bar. Now, it doesn't matter everything. It's true that we are, we, you know, we're interested, of course, in people who are real human beings. And you may have had um, times where you couldn't pay attention and that's normal. People in the first year of college or don't even know what to do with themselves and don't know some of them don't even know like me I had to study I don't think I studied a day in my life until until college 
Um, and so most of us you know, arrive with it. So I think we understand that. I think then the question becomes, okay, are you a BC student in the beginning and then you become a straight A student later? And so there's a real story, right? In any bit of this, I think what you have to be able to convince yourself of is a solid um, story of who you are, why you are applying to, what are you getting out of physicianhood that you wouldn't get out of something else? why medicine and and then at the, the why that matters for your even your grades is the idea that you know is it that you have to just be smart yeah of course you have to be smart but also you have to be the kind of person who's willing to put in because we all know that grades sometimes yes it's about smartness and it's often a lot about hard work yeah. it's a lot about grit and showing up and not not doing things halfway and being totally committed and some of it is so some people think oh so gpa high gpa they're you know that's what they're looking for no i mean part of it is indirect evidence of somebody who is committed somebody who is hardworking. so fine maybe you were a bc student then you became all of a sudden you're straight a's for two years and then you went to some other school and then you're straight a's there and then you're a great human being because of x y and z experience that matters that matters a whole heck of a lot. So you can, you you know, we're, they're not binary like that. Um, so that's why you can see GPAs that are 3.5 and lower sometimes, you know, but definitely um, when, when you're getting less than 3.5, you know, people, it just raises an eyebrow. How can this happen? Right? It's either that we're not intellectually stimulated enough and not producing, or that we're not paying attention, or that we're not that interested. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so you have to think about it from from the other side, right? Like that that that's what, what that represents, and and so that's grades are one thing, but the real standard is um, how people do on their MCATs because um, that is a, a you know an equal uh, e you know um, equal playing field across different schools. Some schools have some grade inflation, so you want to be careful. So you can't just look at the GPA. You got to look at the MCAT. If you see a discordance and a discrepancy, that's helpful. You can have somebody going to a fancy school, a private school, a little bit of grade inflation, suppose, and then they um, do poorly on the MCAT. That tells you something, right? Like, so you, you're mixing and matching um, all the pieces of data that come in, or somebody does average MCAT, average GPA, but man, their story. This is somebody who's a human who puts pieces together and maybe they don't know how to take a, a standardized exam as well as the next guy, or maybe maybe a, um, you know there was a life event or whatever affecting their situation during undergrad. But they're a real human being. They did something really important in their um, with their time <clears throat> that meant something to them, that meant something to other people. This person's worth looking at. Definitely. Thank you so much for that so, insight. That was really good information. <laughs> Um, now, as we move into, um, as we try to finish up here, uh, I know many listeners would be extremely interested in hearing an epidemiologist's perspective on COVID-19. What research have you personally been conducting or has UCI Medical Center conducted uh, on the virulence of the disease? On the virulence of it? Yeah, on how, Is how has this like, been impacting everything? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Another really sort of um, big question. Um, there's lots going on. So there's two things here with the, um, I do healthcare epi, what that, hospital epi, sorry. Uh, what that means is that um, there's an administrative aspect to my job. I, uh, of course, I'm an infectious disease doctor, but um, also paid to um, work on the operations and the actual response to COVID for the healthcare institution so that um, patients uh, and healthcare workers um, uh, are protected during COVID. So what, you know, what are the operational considerations needed? You know, what kind of PPE, of course, but more than that, how, what kind of air um, quality, what kind of um, evaluation for risk uh, for testing? Uh, how do you, um, uh, triage people, how do you properly put them into a place, in, into isolation, and then take them off of isolation, when are they not infectious anymore? 
Um, so that's a lot of operational work, um, but just that's only the tip of the <laughs> iceberg. Um, but, but around that can be a bunch of research related questions. And then the other half of me is supposed to be research and I do a bunch of research um, and some of which is involving coronavirus, um, evaluating how we can predict um, which patients have uh, coronavirus, um, evaluating some things about the asymptomatic individuals who come in with coronavirus. Um, you know, what, what really are they, um, why are they asymptomatic and what, um, what is their infection transmission risk really to other people if they don't have as many symptoms? Um, and uh, uh, boy, there's so many uh, aspects. Serology, there's a, there's a project on um, what does it mean if you have antibodies to the virus? Many of us don't make detectable antibodies to the virus, even though you get sick. So if you're not as symptomatic, you won't make as many antibodies. Uh, and then um, other studies are showing that if you make antibodies, they only, their half-life is um, a month or two. Um, so uh, how do you clinically or otherwise interpret antibody um, tests? And, uh, and then PCR tests, how do you clinically uh, interpret those? Because those can stay positive um, for up to two to three months. So how do you define a true acute COVID patient? And how do you define a COVID patient that's actually infectious to other human beings? Um, so that's just some of the work that's kind of going on. Um, let's see. Uh, now a question um, that we've seen a little bit is, um, is there any correlation between uh, someone's blood type and how severe the infection can be? I've been seeing a little, studies, a little bit of studies on this. Um, I just wanted to ask you on your perspective on this, have you seen any uh, studies regarding this? I have actually. Um... They were, it, it's true that people have correlated that, but if I remember correctly, I don't think there's been a real, like a good study that, um, that's really correlated blood type properly. I think, um, I have to be honest, I, I'm not sure that it's a defined entity at this point. I think it's interesting, um, uh, but needs more research uh, to really be able to say, you know, you don't know how well, how biased, uh, whether or not that was uh, truly, you know, biased. Um, effectively, uh, I think the jury is out uh, on this topic yet, but I do think that it will be an area of heavy research, actually. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that answers your question. It's hard to Say, no, no, yeah, definitely. It yeah, yeah. It's just like definitive. the validity of that is a little hard to yeah. tell right now, too. Yeah, there's then, no there's no reason to be certain about it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. And then do you think things will go back to being normal anytime soon? If not, when do you think things will go back to being normal? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I mean, coronavirus has just rocked our world. Um, yeah. And for good reason, uh, but we've also, as a community, had a, a very different response to this than we did in times past um, uh, with other pandemics, right? Like, um, listen, coronavirus is like a cold or flu. That is how it is transmitted. It is not airborne. Um, Getting some of the facts straight, I think, will help us understand what mechanisms we need to put into place so, so that we can safely re-engage. Um, and I think that we're doing all those things. Uh, it's just getting the whole community to act as one and comply with programs, is, uh, you know, with, with protocols, is really the key point. So when you ask about how long it'll last well, at all, I think a lot of it depends on us. So let's, let's breaking that down just a little bit. So now we're in, what, September. Um, schools are going to reintegrate. Let's just talk about California or Southern California. I know that our districts here locally in Irvine are looking to integrate within the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, we start back up in person. So if you count two incubations, um, two to three incubation periods, which is 14 days uh, per incubation period. So that puts us at about six weeks. Um, uh, you know, four to six weeks later, we expect very much that we will start seeing a resurgence in coronavirus. 
coupled with um, you know, the fact that the governor is, is understandably relaxing business requirements um, and people are going to start re-engaging. It's going to be the holidays, et cetera. So typical fashion, I do think that people are going to have a harder time complying with standards um, and they will open up more pathways for the virus to spread. And so I had slated March 2021 as my personal sense of, of how long this uh, change in, I guess, societal status would last. Um, uh, you know, even though a vaccine may or may not be coming by the end of the year, it still needs to be operationally rolled out, doesn't it? Um, it has to get out to everybody and, um, and then it has to take a size. So it's going to take a while um, just from logistics perspective. So I would think that with the, um, some degree of seasonality and um, uh, that we're going to see a peak or a second wave, traditionally all pandemics traditionally have had a, a wave one, wave two, and a wave three. Um, I shouldn't say all, but all the big ones. So um, the influenza 1918, wave one, and then wave two in the fall, and the wave three the next year's fall. And so um, there's no reason to think that we wouldn't be at risk for all of those things. But I do think, I don't know if, if it's true or that there's any data for this, but uh, I do think that people have started to get the message and people are changing yeah. their habits and if that happens maybe we'll see a a more flattened curve throughout okay. and it'll be a slow burn to a little bit higher burn <laughs> okay thank you so much um and looking back on your journey throughout the whole process uh from undergraduate to residency is there anything you would have done differently or regret uh and why yeah. Um, blah, I'm trying to think of some good examples, but I'm yeah. sure there's lots. You know, I think I I regret, even though I think I did um, try to get the most out of. Now I was very. Um, first of all, I didn't talk to people about my career. You, the stuff you guys are doing, you're more than halfway there. I mean, I didn't ask for advice. I didn't um, reach out to my my attendings or um, other other you know professors because I I I think I felt really shy and I felt like I you know I just didn't feel like I was um, going to ask a question that was really worth their time or whatever and I realized that I that's really missing out um, and I, that's one thing I really would have done is I would have talked to a lot more people. And I was always one of those people, I don't like to network, I don't like to, um, you know, it should all be on merit. And, you know, I think that it's not so much about networking, but what different people, every time you talk to somebody who has had an experience or who's gone through whatever it is that you think that you want to follow that path, it's really important to go down to, to walk their shoes because you stand on their experience too. And just the same way that I pick my residency programs based on like who is the most experienced faculty group, you know, in a certain area um, and for clinical expertise. And in that same way, every human being is like this nugget of like information that they've collected over time and, and being able to tap into that because most people are, they wanna see you do well. And that's something I didn't really fully understand um, when I was younger. I'd be too afraid. And I, I definitely encourage people to just just ask. If, if, if you're wondering it, somebody else is wondering it probably, or if you're wondering it, um, that person most likely has probably wondered the same at some point in their lives. And, um, and, and that's, it's just really, it'll enrich your experience. So I think that's one thing I would definitely have done better. I think I would have had more opportunities. I would have had more ideas about what I could do. I just, sometimes I just chose things and chose certain rotations because I thought, ah, why not, you know? And instead having a directed plan um, would have been a good idea. Thank you for that. Um, now, as we wrap this up, what are some final suggestions that you'd give uh, pre-med students who are aspiring to be doctors and uh, what are some um, advice you have on their journey? I know you explained a lot about that, but just anything, yeah. any other tips? Uh, 
I would say above all else, you have to love it. Mm-hmm. You have to enjoy it. And yeah. if you're not feeling it at that level, I think I, I, I suggest you strongly look at yourself in the mirror and decide if this is really a path that you want, not because you're not good enough, not because you're not, or you think you're not good enough, or not because you think um, it's expected of you or whatever it is. Don't let, in, in either direction, don't let you get dissuaded if you happen to have bad grades one year or something like that. Um, you know, what do you really want? And I think that everything comes from there because all the other stuff I mentioned, but I mentioned you have to really care for something and passionate, be passionate about it and you got to get good grades and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the road is so hard. Um, you will find yourself in stairwells thinking, is this the right choice for me? Because it was so darn hard that day or that person or emotionally it was just difficult or whatever. Um, and you have to know that you're prepared for those moments and who, what's going to get you through moments like that. Cause you're sleepless cause you're tired and all this bad stuff and you don't have the right or the privilege to take that out on anybody, including your patients and, or your, um, your coworkers. And you got to keep your head straight on. You. You've got to have grit. And so what's going to carry you through those moments and, and, and so that's why I'm emphasizing. And I think many of us, who've gone through this path emphasize that you absolutely must love what you do um, because that's the only thing that's going to get you through those dark moments um, and, and really carry you through. All right. Thank you so much for that insight. And um, I think that'll do it. Dr. Gohill, thank you so much for your time and help. Yeah, of course. Good luck to you all. Thank Thank you so much.